Good morning. Uh, I'm going to be reading the scripture passage uh, that Pastor Benjamin's going to be preaching from, uh, from Acts. Um, and after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul also came to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. This is God's word. Thank you for reading that, Tony. Uh, Just a reminder, next week we'll have our church picnic and baptism. So the baptism will be during second service and then the picnic afterwards, uh, kind of all out in that area. There's more details in the bulletin. You don't know this yet, but this is going to be our last sermon in the book of Acts for a while, probably till January. We've made it halfway, um, actually even further than halfway, and so we're going to take a break for a while. We're going to have a standalone sermon next week to start the fall, and then we're going to spend 10 weeks in a sermon series we're going to call All Who Are Weary, and That's the title. The subtitle is The Idols That Exhaust Us and the Savior Who Won't. We're going to be looking at different passages in the gospel uh, that see the stories about the life of Jesus and his love for people, his love for you and for me. We're going to be talking about sexuality and busyness and politics and comfort and health and A whole bunch of other potential idols that when we give ourselves over to them, they exhaust us. But that's September 20th, so we're still a ways away from that. This morning we're going to finish our sermon series in the book of Acts for a time. It could be helpful to think about the book of Acts like a beautiful painting painted by a master painter. The painting is huge, more like a mural really. And Every little detail of the painting, every color, every technique brings out certain details and tells a story. Even though it's huge, like even if you zoom in, like there's detail and technique and color that tells their own story. But as we've preached through the book of Acts, it can seem like each sermon cuts that painting up into 20 or 30 smaller pieces. And we do that because... The painting's so huge, it's really hard to stand in front of the whole book of Acts and say, okay, what's going on in the whole book? It takes two and a half hours to read it by itself, let alone talk about it. 
We do that also, we cut it up into smaller pieces because just beholding one scrap of the painting, we see the skill and intention of the artist. But sometimes when we cut up the book, it can be less easy to see how each little piece of the painting pertains to the whole. And so as we come to this stopping point, I want to hold up one more picture, one more piece of the painting, from the, one more passage from the book of Acts, and, and to make clear again how this particular piece fits in the whole picture. We titled the sermon series, Without Hindrance, and we got that title from the last word, in the last verse, in the last chapter, in the book of Acts. In the Greek, it's just one word that means without hindrance. And it's a really strange word to put at the end of this book. A whole book that's filled with hindrances. But the ironic but true point is that the masterpiece that is the book of Acts has been crafted in such a way to show that whatever hindrances are stacked against God's church, God will build his church. Over and over and over again, the book of Acts shows us there's no hindrance so big as to disrupt the plan and purposes of God to bless his people, to build his church, and magnify the glory of grace. That's, that, that's the book of Acts. And so, just so happens that as I hold up the picture this morning, there's actually two pictures on it. <laughs> two little stories. So let's look at each of those here. We'll see how each one highlights a potential hindrance and how God overcomes it. So we'll look again here at the first one. I'm going to read the last few verses of chapter 15 again, beginning in verse 36 through 41. And I'll just tell you the hindrance now. It's a conflict of leaders. Conflict among leaders. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. It's a good plan. Verse 37, now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. There rose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But, Saul, excuse me, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, I think. I don't know how to say that. Strengthening the churches. Verse 39 speaks of a sharp disagreement. I will tell you that Christians have been looking at this passage for 2,000 years, and there is something of a sharp disagreement about what their sharp disagreement is over. (laughs) Uh, Who was right, Paul or Barnabas? Who was wrong? Who was sinning? Who was not? We don't know the answer, but their disagreement would have been uncomfortable for everyone around these leaders. I've been actively involved in Christian ministry for almost 20 years. As a volunteer, sometimes on staff, and I could tell you of tense meetings where leaders had sharp disagreements. And in those meetings, those who were around those leaders were tense and confused. 
Those around those leaders felt pressured to take a side. Maybe you've worked somewhere like this before. Maybe you work somewhere like this right now. Maybe your parents have sharp disagreements far too often and you lie in bed at night wondering what's going to happen to your parents' marriage. This situation between Paul and Barnabas was a real hindrance. And it is a surprising hindrance. Paul and Barnabas, their friendship goes way back. Before Paul was dramatically converted by Jesus, he used to hate Jesus and Christians. But when no one else would vouch for Paul's change of heart, Barnabas did. Acts chapter 9. Your favorite band may break up, your favorite team may trade your favorite player, but no one was expecting Paul and Barnabas to go their separate ways. They were persecuted as they served Jesus together. When Paul was stoned and left for dead, the very next day, Paul and Barnabas traveled to the next town to preach about Jesus together. That kind of suffering forges friendships. They've been in the trenches of ministry together. And their argument arose over whether to bring John Mark with them on the next missionary journey. Apparently, John Mark had previously left them. So it's just a small detail to us. Acts chapter 13, verse 13, we're told that Mark didn't continue. It's just a passing sentence. So we don't know a whole lot about it. Luke is just vague or, I don't know, just gracious maybe and not pouring all the details or wise I it's it's even there it's hard to know but Barnabas is saying yes let's take John Mark and Paul is saying no let's not it's helpful to note John Mark was the younger cousin to Barnabas that's what Colossians 4 10 tells us so they're related so, so that detail might help you see the disagreement a little more clearly. Barnabas has this huge, big heart. who wants to give Mark, his cousin, a, another chance and, and says, Paul, you're too focused on the mission, not people. And, and, and Paul's over here saying, huh, you're blinded by your family ties. And both accusations sting. So which is better, loyalty to people or to a mission? Or can it be both? It's hard to know who was right. We certainly don't have all the details, but we know they split up. Mark and Barnabas go off to Cyprus where Barnabas was from. And the rest of the narrative of the book of Acts, which we'll come to back to in January, follows Paul. Acts tells us nothing more about John Mark. Acts does, at least. And Barnabas. So the hindrance was real. And just, I want to insert here, That this detail, this little story in the book of Acts should temper our expectations as we look for churches and leaders. You won't find a perfect church, even if the Apostle Paul is your pastor, along with Barnabas. Let that sink in. There's such a thing as bad churches, sure. So you should go to a good church if you can, but... Know that even your good church is going to have conflict. And this is where I want to tie this picture, this passage, into the theme without hindrance. We don't hear about Mark anymore in the book of Acts. But in God's sovereignty, Mark went on to become a close associate of Peter, and then he went on to write 
the gospel of Mark. That's a pretty big deal. That's a legacy of fruitful Christian ministry that we are still recipients of. And in Paul's letters, we don't have time to go look at them except for just one. In Paul's letters that were written after this, when he mentions Mark, he does so positively. In fact, from a Roman prison at the end of his life when winter is coming soon, perhaps about 67-ish A.D., A.D. 67, the Apostle Paul wrote to a young man named Timothy. And in that letter, Paul wrote this, quote, right at the very end, it's the last snippet of anything we have from the Apostle Paul. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. This conflict was a hindrance. Probably some amount of sin was involved, at least in the way they treated each other. Probably. But when you hold this scrap of the painting back up to the whole mural, we see that in God's grace, this hindrance doubled missionary efforts. And in the end, the relationship, it seems, was healed. Now, this is not to excuse sin, but it is to point out that there are no perfect churches and leaders, but there is a perfect and powerful grace of God to build his church. Now, speaking of this young man, Timothy, let's look at the next portion of our passage. The last part of the book of Acts we'll read until 2021. So I'm going to read the first five verses. I won't tell you what the hindrance is yet. Just want you to read this here, one through five. And just be thinking, okay, what's the hindrance here? It's not as obvious, but I think it's just as real. Verses one through five. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was also a, or was a Greek. Verse 4. So they went on their way through all the cities. They delivered to them... So all these other cities doing all these ministry things, doing this missionary journey, delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. Now that's a callback to last week's sermon. So if you weren't here, I'm going to recap some of that so that we can understand this passage better. And then we have verse 5. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. So what's the hindrance? Did you see it? not so obvious, is it? But I'll tell you what I think is the potential hindrance. Costly evangelism. I'll explain more. We're going to have to backtrack first. Last week when Ben was preaching from Acts, 5, Acts chapter 15, um, and the churches had a controversy about salvation. And so they convened a church council in Jerusalem. That's why it says verse 4, what the, the decision was handed down by Jerusalem, right? So they convened a council in Jerusalem to discuss it. And this was the controversy. Does a Gentile, so a non-Jewish person, have to observe the ceremonial laws prescribed by God in the Old Testament to be saved? What's the answer? Do they have to do that? A few Jewish people said yes. People must follow the Old Testament ceremonial 
purity laws in order to be saved. Laws about clean and unclean foods and clean and unclean practices. You want to be a Christian? You got to do these. But then, as Ben pointed out so well last week, the council, the Jerusalem council, as we call it, upheld the gospel of God's free grace. One does not have to practice Old Testament ceremonial laws to be saved. We are saved by turning to Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross, he took our punishment for him so that when we turn from our sins, trust in Jesus, God looks on us, looks on Christians, those who trust in Jesus, as with all the love, with all the affection, with all the devotion that he looks on his own son. That's the gospel. That's the good news of Christianity. That's what the Jerusalem council upheld. And so they wrote this letter and then they sent out some leaders, Paul being one of them, to go share that letter with the churches. And they write in Acts chapter 15, verse 29, we'll put it on the screen, only this, that the believers must, quote, abstain from, four things, what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from the things that have been strangled, and from sexual immorality. And you're like, what in the world is that all about? Well, good news. (laughs) We're going to talk about that for the next five minutes or so. So a quick but important aside, what is all that about? Ben pointed out, I think rightly last week, that these statements are about evangelism. The believers were not bound to avoid these four things so that they could be saved. Like, if I, do, if I avoid these things, then I'll be saved. That's exactly what the Jerusalem Council was not saying. But what they were saying was that if you're going to do ministry with good, strict, observant Jews, then their evangelism would be more successful if they avoided these four things. Now, one of these things is not like the other. What's that about? A Christian reading this today should be struck by the fact that avoiding sexual immorality doesn't seem like in the same category as eating kosher food or not, right? What's that about? To say avoiding sexual immorality is just about evangelism could make it seem like God was saying that if you're around people who, for them, the Old Testament's a really big deal, then you, you know, don't commit sexual sin because that will help them love Jesus better. But if you're around people that aren't so worried about that, sleep with whoever you want, right? That is not what this passage is saying. That is not what that means. These four items, when you group them together, and I know this feels obscure, it's going to come back around, but meat sacrificed to idols and blood and animals that have been strangled and sexual immorality, when you group all four of those together, they create this sort of matrix with a very specific meaning. When grouped together, they can mean one of two things, but probably some of both. And the payoff of both is the exact same. So here it is. It could be saying that the Gentiles... Uh, in their kind of cult religious system that they had. They had all of these things happening. So it would likely, if you're going to do evangelism among strict Jews, you should avoid even the perception of association with Gentile cult pagan worship, which had meat sacrifice to idols and temple prostitution and all these things. So, you know, if you go to a market and they're selling steak that was left over from the temple sacrifices and that steak is cheap, don't even buy it because then when you serve it to the Jewish people, when you have them over for dinner to evangelize them, they're going to be like, where'd you get that steak? And that feels really obscure. Paul had to write about that in 1 Corinthians 8. Like that was a big deal in the early church. So it could mean that. 
The other option is that maybe it had to do with ceremonial purity laws, clean and unclean, that no longer apply to us as Christians. So, for example, again, feels obscure, but there were laws in the Old Testament about a husband and wife being together during the wife's time of her monthly period and how that was forbidden. But then in the New Testament, that no longer applies. So maybe that's what this is about. Either way, the New Testament is upholding that sexual sin is wrong But here, just this cluster of things. If you want to do evangelism, you need to avoid these things. Take a greater degree to avoid them. Now, not to be saved, but to have successful evangelism. So, to frame it in our context. What in the world does that have to do with us? To frame it in our context. We might say, if you were going to share Jesus, about Jesus, with strict Muslims, you would take an extra sensitivity towards modesty. Feels like common knowledge. Real strict Muslim, we're going to be extra strict on modesty. Another way to say it is, um, let's say you worked at Netflix, right? A Christian, I believe, could work at Netflix. It's a huge company employing people all sorts of different roles. Human resources, graphic design, project management, accounting, product procurement, marketing, all of these things, so on and so forth. Tons of jobs within it. But if you worked for Netflix, even if you had nothing to do with that portion of Netflix that does produce obscene, explicitly sexual content, even if you had nothing to do with that, you would probably know if I was going to do evangelism with Muslims, strict Muslims, it would be a hindrance to them that I was even remotely associated with that. In other words, I wouldn't need to stop that job to be saved, but if I was going to do effective evangelism, I, like, I might have to change my job. That's what chapter 15 is about. Now, that may feel like it has nothing to do with this passage or your life, but it does. What would you give up for the sake of seeing others love Jesus? What would you sacrifice voluntarily to see other people have joy, the joy in Jesus that you have? Look with me again at verse 3. Chapter 16, verse 3. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, missionary journey. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Timothy has a Greek father and a Jewish mother. Timothy, in his heart and in his religion, followed his mother, but because of the hindrance of growing up in a home with an unbelieving father, they could not fully practice their Jewish religion. Some of you have homes like this. There are wives here at church who would like to give money to God through a church and send their children to Christian school, but that's not going to happen because of the context of their home. So they don't. That's Timothy's home. If young Timothy had gone with Paul as he was on that missionary journey with strict Jews, those strict Jews would have looked at Timothy and said, well, Timothy might see Jesus as the Messiah. But he's not a real Jew. He's not a serious Jew. We can't trust his opinion about the Messiah. And so the issue of circumcision, which sort of typified whether you're a good Jew or not, would have been a stumbling block to evangelism. So Timothy got circumcised as an adult, not to be saved, but to reach people for Jesus. Now, I don't want to be silly or to elicit giggles, but consider the cost. To undergo a small, painful surgery for the sake of the lost, that's a potential hindrance. I mean, I'm just going to say, that's a potential hindrance. Where did that kind of passion come from? 
There's a phrase I've, had to, I've heard used by authors and pastors before that helps me understand where this kind of sacrificial passion to reach for people for Jesus might have come from. The phrase goes, what you call them with, you call them to. Maybe you've heard it, maybe you haven't. It means that the environment you are nurtured in and the things you originally win people over with shape the type of person they become. So in ministry, we might say that the kind of Christianity we experience when we are one to the Lord shapes the type of Christian we become. So if you are one to Christianity with promises of health and wealth, that will shape the expectations you have for Christianity and Jesus as your Christian life goes on. Parents, Christian educators, take that to heart. Timothy most likely became a Christian Five years before this event, when the Apostle Paul visited the city of Lystra, Timothy's town. And in that city, chapter 14, Paul was stoned because of his faith. Paul goes there, Paul preaches, they throw rocks at him, he dies or almost dies. They drag him out of the city, drags himself out of the city, he gets back up, goes and preaches again. That's, that's when Timothy got saved, five years before this. And when Paul comes back five years later, and when Timothy hears about Paul, and he's going on, Timothy wants to go with Paul. And when Timothy learns what it will cost him, he says, I get it. But count me in. I've seen that type of passionate, sacrificial Christianity displayed in you, Paul, and I'm in. The last page. Just an encouragement to all of you. How you suffer matters. You may have suffering in your life that is so significant. You don't even know how you can serve Christ. You can't do the things you used to do. But know this, by suffering well, by clinging to the goodness of Jesus, even when you don't have all of the answers, that makes a lasting impression on those inside and outside the church. This year, 2020, is a wonderful year to show people how awesome Jesus is. What we call you with, we call you to. If the environment you were brought up in Christianity didn't know this kind of sacrificial love for Jesus displayed here in Paul, you'll have some work to do as you keep following Jesus. But see the encouragement. See the encouragement here in the text as well. Ministry done under the Lord is never fruitless, even when it looks that way. In God's grace, God gives us a glimpse of the result of Timothy's sacrifice. Look at verse 5 with me again. Luke adds one of his many summary statements that he adds throughout the book. Verse 5 says this. So the churches were, were strengthened in the faith, and they increased In numbers daily. It's as Luke, it's as if Luke is grabbing our attention. It's as if he's grabbing us, putting his hands on our shoulders. Say, friends, I've said a lot so far. Some of it feels obscure, but don't miss the point of what I'm trying to say. Don't miss the mural I'm painting before you. The sacrifice is worth it. People got saved. Lives and eternities are changed forever. There is no hindrance, Luke says, that God can't turn for our good and his glory. 
In many ways, the book of Acts was written to show forth the truth of Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Jesus is talking to the apostle Peter, the other disciples, and he says this. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I don't know what we have ahead of us in the rest of 2020. We still have an election. (laughs) The first eight months have been a doozy, but I do know that where God is and where the gospel is preached, God is building his church and loving his people with and without hindrances. I invite the worship team back up to close us in song. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would build within us the type of view of Jesus that would so see him as ruling and reigning, as ascended to the throne of the universe, that we would become the type of people who love you even when it's costly. And Lord, I pray for those right now who have made sacrifices, are making sacrifices, who feel like hindrances are to the left and to the right, in front of them, behind them. I pray that you would help them and us to see that there is no hindrance so big that your will can't be done and your people can't be blessed. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.